I'm Lisa Stone, and you are listening to Season 8 of Parenting Aces. Welcome to Season 8 of the Parenting Aces podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Stone. Thanks so much for joining us. This week's episode is personal, and I mean personal. I'm interviewing my dad, Carl Goodman, who I had the pleasure of spending the weekend with, with him and my mom in Dallas and then in Shreveport as we went to the American College Placement Showcase at SMU over the weekend. And I thought it would be really cool to interview my dad about his life in tennis because it's been a part of his life and therefore part of my life forever and ever and ever. And he saw some stuff this weekend and it kind of sparked some discussions and I thought it would be fun to kind of hear his history and have him share that with all of you. So, Dad, thanks for being with us. Oh, you're welcome. I'm really happy to finally do this. We've talked about doing it for a couple years and just never really got around to it, but now's the perfect opportunity. So let's start by having you kind of describe your earliest memories of playing tennis. Well, my earliest memory, I think I must have been 11 years old, and I have a vivid memory of my dad handing me an old Davis wooden racket out at the country club and telling me he's quitting playing tennis and he wants me to learn to play. That's my first memory. Soon after that, I went away to a summer camp up in Wisconsin where I got interested in tennis up there. So I played some tennis up there. It wasn't very competitive, but it was fun. And then in the eighth grade, I went to a new school. I had been in public school before that. I had never played in the tennis tournament, never played a match. I don't know what I did tennis-wise at home in New Orleans during those years. But at the new school, they had a tennis coach who was from Czechoslovakia named Francis Sojka. I remember him. And that was my first formal tennis instruction. And I think I took a lesson, or I, I was in a group probably at school, maybe once or twice a week. And that's when I got really interested in tennis. Looking through my scrapbook, which my mother kept, the first entry I see of any competitive tennis was in 1953, which would make me 15 years old. And I started playing in some of the local tournaments in New Orleans and had some success. So back then, you just had the, what I remember was the juniors were 18 and under and the boys were 15 and under or some other name. I can't remember the name for it. But that's when I started having some success when I went to the private school and they had a coach. And apparently, I, I got good enough to compete and started winning some in the city. And there was a pro that the Tulane tennis team coach had a had a coach named Emmett Perret, who was French and played on the French Davis Cup team, actually. And my parents arranged for me to start taking lessons from Coach Perret at the old New Orleans Lawn Tennis Club. While you were in high school? While I was in high school, okay. correct. And that's when I really improved. I probably took one lesson a week. I used to ride my bike from my house to the tennis club <laughs> and uh, take a lesson. And that's when I improved and started getting competitive. The first time I ever left home to play in a tennis tournament was with one of my high school tennis mates, and we took the bus to Atlanta and played in a 15 and under, I think it was 15 and under tennis tournament up there at the Bitsy Grant Tennis Center. Which is still there. Right. Yep. And then we hitchhiked up to Athens <laughs> and played in a match, played in a tournament up there, and we both got beat pretty badly. But that was the first time we ever left home to play tennis. So Coach Perret, being the Tulane coach, that was my dream, that I would get to play tennis at Tulane. Uh, back then, 
you couldn't play college, you couldn't play intercollegiate tennis as a freshman. So my freshman year at Tulane, I was 17 years old. I had a January birthday, which allowed me to play the entire 17th year of my life. So after my freshman year in college, where I got to hit with all the Tulane tennis team players, mm-hmm. uh, I got to go off for the summer and play competitive tennis at 18 and under. So I had a great, successful summer that summer. And uh, we went, a friend of mine from Shreveport, who's still my friend, Austin Robertson, we had a car. I think I had an old Buick I traveled in, and we traveled all over the place. The furthest we went was to the Southerns at Davidson, North Carolina. That's where it was. And that's where I had my first breakthrough. I wasn't seated. I wasn't known at all. And I beat the fourth seated player in about the first or second round and got all the way to the, must have gotten all the way to the quarters, I think, and ended up getting ranked number four in the South in the juniors and number three with doubles with my friend Austin Robertson. Who, let's just... Let's talk about the fact that you and Austin still play tennis together. Correct. And you are over 80 years old, the right, two of you. Right, <laughs> So We're both 81. Actually, Austin and I, he was from Shreveport, I was from New Orleans, and we were competitive in the juniors. And actually, I played him in the, they used to have a state junior chamber of commerce tournament, and the winner and runner-up got to go to a national junior chamber of commerce tournament and we played each other in the finals and both got to go to Chicago and we played I'm not I think it was Lake Forest was the name of it and uh, it was where the national clay courts were wow. before it moved to Houston but that was an experience so that summer I had great success and uh, I didn't have a scholarship my freshman year but after that summer I approached Coach Perret and asked for some help, and I did get tuition. Mm. He helped with my tuition. So my freshman year at Tulane, the number one player in the South, Crawford Henry from Atlanta, started his freshman year with me. And the junior Wimbledon champion, Ron Holmberg, came in February of that year. So my freshman year was me. Crawford Henry and Ron Holmberg. Wow. I, I was way down on that ladder, but <laughs> we had some really good players. The number one player my freshman year was Ham Richardson, who played Davis Cup for the U.S. and was a very highly internationally ranked tennis player. But his senior year, which was my freshman year, he wasn't allowed to go to the NCAA, NCAA tournament because he had played four years of college tennis. So we had a, a fella from Brazil named Pepe Aguero, who played number two. So coach sent Pepe up to the NCAA tournament, and he won it. Wow. So at number two, our number two guy won the NCAA tournament. That's amazing. <laughs> that was pretty amazing. And I think Ron won it one year. I know Crawford and Ron won the doubles a couple times. I'm told we won the NCAA championship in 1959, but I don't remember much about that. We didn't go as a team, but I think we did so well that we were ranked number one in the country. So that would have been my senior year, 1959. So let's let's stop here for a second. I want to just ask you about the whole process of playing college tennis. You weren't recruited. There wasn't really a recruiting process that you went through. It just so happened that the Tulane coach was your junior coach, and you basically said, I want to come play, and he said, okay? Exactly. Wow. <laughs> exactly. My my record after my freshman year, that summer I did so well, so he was happy to have me at that point. Uh Coaching-wise, the only coaching I had was that coach at my high school and then Mm -hmm. Coach Perret. We didn't have any nutritionists, strength coaches, 
no types of other coaching. Right. And so talk about what your junior tennis looked like. I mean, you went to school, you played on your team. Were there lessons? Were there drills? Were there tournaments every weekend? Or how? what did it look like for you? Tennis back then was, we had a group of people who were competitive with each other. The tournaments were the city tournaments. That was about it for us. We played matches daily. We played against each other. And we had... We were competitive enough to have good enough players that you wanted to beat each other. So that's how we learned to play tennis. And who arranged the matches? We did. The kids? Yes. Yes. So, and where were the parents in all of this? They weren't there. No. My parents were very supportive of my tennis. And the only times they came to watch me is if I got in the finals of a tournament. But otherwise they were... Not involved in the day-to-day? Not at all. Not at all. No. It was an individual sport. It's still an individual sport, but it's changed. Right. Too many people involved. Yeah, Yeah, we've had that conversation. We'll we'll have that conversation a little (laughs) later on in the hour. So you played in college. You graduated. You played all four years at Tulane? Well, Well, you could only play three. Three Yes, played three years. And then... You went to medical school. Correct. And where was tennis during your medical training? Not much at all. Yeah, almost. Oh, so my mom's interjecting here. Um, Clinics in the summer? What was that? No, I do have something to add. Let's see. After my... Well... Coach Perret, the Tulane coach, right. went to Chicago every summer. Okay. And I took over his teaching job at New Orleans Lawn Tennis Club. He and Me and my younger brother, who was a very fine athlete, we taught tennis every summer at, Piermont, at uh, <laughs> uh, the Lawn Tennis Club. Yeah. I went to camp one summer up in Maine as a tennis counselor at a boys' camp. That was a great experience. Mm -hmm. That's really the experience that got me out of business school into pre-med. So this is doing college. Okay. Yeah. Medical school, I don't think I played much tennis in medical school. My mom's whispering out to the side in case y'all couldn't hear that. On Saturdays and Sundays, he played. In medical school. During medical school. But you weren't competing. You were playing for pleasure at that point. I I think she's wrong because we were still in New Orleans. Yes, but you did play some tournaments. I I don't remember that. Okay. The only tournaments I would have played would have been the so-called state close that was in New Orleans. That's the only thing I can remember playing. And so when you completed medical school, I was already born at that point, and you all moved up to Shreveport. And at what point did you get involved in the tennis world in Shreveport? Right away. Interesting story. We moved up here, and there was a new tennis club called Piermont Oaks Tennis Club. Which, for the record, there's an ITF women's tournament being played there this week. Right. So that, that, that club opened in 1961. We moved to Shreveport in 1963. So I mosey out to Piermont Oaks just to see what's there. And the pro was a fellow named Kenny Carter who played tennis at LSU while I was at Tulane. We knew each other competitively and as friends. Mm. And the club offered me a free membership while I was in my internship and residency up here because we had no money. And we had so many tennis players around the area that on Saturday and Sunday, nobody called anybody. But at 1 o'clock, we would meet at Piermont, and we had enough people we would play singles. After that, we'd play doubles, and that was every Saturday and Sunday. Nobody ever called anybody. We just showed up. Wow. And it was great. And then during my internship and residency, I played in the city tournaments. And there was a 
stayed open that was here that over Labor Day. Mm-hmm. It was hot, hot, hot here. And that's some of my memories of just misery in the heat. <laughs> but I stayed competitive, and Austin Robertson, that name that came up, had moved back to Shreveport after college. He was a CPA. So when I moved back to Shreveport, I hooked up with Austin right away. And we've been playing ever since. Right. So we figured we've been playing either with or against each other for 60 to 65 years. That's crazy. It's interesting. We still play singles once or twice a week. And people say, why don't you play doubles? Well, both of our knees are bad. We don't have much stamina anymore. We both learned we can move sideways pretty well. We can't run forward and backwards, so we don't drop shot and we don't lob. And we have a good time. We have a competitive, usually one set of tennis, and we're finished. (laughs) That's awesome. So I want to get back to this whole idea of the fact that you and your friends were 100% in charge of how much and when you played tennis. Your parents really were not that involved in it other than to, I guess, pay the tournament entry fees and pay for the coach when you had a, a lesson maybe. But um, so you watched me raise my son playing tennis. It was a very different situation. Correct. Yeah. And I'm wondering, you know, you're pretty good about keeping your mouth shut about things unless you're asked for an opinion. And and I didn't ask very much, which was my mistake. But looking back on Morgan's junior development and our years, and you came to a few tournaments and saw him play in college, what memory do you have of, of something that maybe jumped out at you that you thought, gosh, tennis sure has changed? Well, tennis is an individual sport, and it was my individual identity as a high schooler and a college. And when I moved to Shreveport, I had an immediate identity as a tennis player. It didn't have anything to do with my coach or my parents or anybody else, and that was very important to me. So today, you have the parents very involved You have coaches, nutritionists, God knows what. I don't, therapists. Yep. (laughs) And and the parents are very involved, so much so at times that I'm not sure the sport belongs to the player. It belongs to the family or whoever's so involved. Mm -hmm. Another thing, we never drilled. We never had any instruction maybe in high school I had some instruction I think back in college I I don't remember our coach telling us much of anything you know we were already pretty good players and he'd probably coach us about a match we were going to play but other than that I remember one match when Sammy Giamalva who was a prominent player from Texas had beaten Ham Richardson the year before Sammy's son has been on this podcast. Really? Yes. <laughs> so he had beaten Ham Richardson in 1955. So the next year, they're coming to New Orleans to play Tulane on our courts. I think he beat Ham on the hard courts in Texas. So he's coming to play on the Rubico, the dirt. And I'll never forget Coach telling Pepe Aguero, our number two player, Pepe, don't come to the net. Just keep the ball in play. You might beat this guy if you can wear him out. Well, Pepe went out, excuse me, just beat the guy, beat him like a drum, went in the net, volleyed, did everything. And uh, I I never forgot that. His coach had told him, you're not going to do that. (laughs) But he did. So I don't remember a lot of coaching in college, not much at all. Hmm. Can you talk about your college experience, because we've talked about that a little bit too, you and I, uh, about how different college tennis is now compared to when you were in college. What was a typical day like for you? Do you remember? Well, I went to school. I went to college. I had to take, I took eight o'clock classes six days a week, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. I had 
I had to be finished to get to tennis by one o'clock. And then we played every afternoon. When It wasn't coaching, though. We went and played each other. We played matches Just the against teammates. Yeah, yeah, played against each other. And we were through by five or six o'clock. And that was the end of it. Was there gym time or recovery time or nutrition lectures or yoga? Any nothing, of that stuff? nothing. <laughs> but you have to realize I was not living in the dorm. I was living at home. Okay. So I would guess if you interviewed Austin, mm -hmm. who lived in the dorm, you might get a different story. But I don't think there was any formal training or eating or anything. Mm -hmm. And what about when y'all played other schools? What, what did that look like? I mean, did you travel? How did you travel? Uh, we traveled by car because we played furthest. I remember going was to Nashville to play Vanderbilt. Uh, but we traveled by car everywhere. It took several cars. I don't ever remember having a bus or a van. So I think Coach took a car and we had a couple other cars and we just go. Mm -hmm. We had six players who played. We played four, let's see, we played four singles and two doubles most of the matches. Okay. Know? And y'all played three out of five sets? No, no. Two no, out of no, three? Yeah, two out of three. Okay. Yeah. And of course, normal scoring. Exactly. Right. And so did the school provide your equipment, your clothes, all of that stuff? Do you remember if you had all of that was provided by Tulane? Uh, maybe the guys on full scholarship got, got all that. I didn't get all that. I had my own clothes. Coach had a racket strung for us. I bought my shoes. Uh, I don't remember him buying anything. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. But I wasn't a top player. You know, I was at a on a... Six-man team, I was number four, five, four, and five. But in a team event, every point counts, right? right? So, I mean, the number four and five guy is just as important as the number one guy when it comes to winning as a team. Right. So, yeah. So, this weekend, we're at this college showcase where there were high school players there there were coaches present from division one division two II, division three naia schools i don't think there were any junior colleges no. there um and you heard a lot of stuff from the coaches you got to overhear some of the parents talking what jumps out at you that seems different or maybe seems like tennis has gone in a direction that you know, you you never would have imagined. Well, it's a big business. Tennis is a big business. Big business for parents, big business for coaches, big business for the schools, big business for the tennis manufacturers, balls, strings, shoes. It's a big business. It wasn't for us. Uh, one memory I have, our tennis situation at Tulane it was like, belonging to a country club. We had four Rubico courts surrounded by bamboo on three sides and the stands on one side. And we were totally enclosed and the people that came to watch were the only people there. But it was fun. I mean, every day was fun. It was never work mm -hmm. for me. Um, today, for a high school kid, you know, they they play so hard now just to get ranked or seen. Most of them have had multiple coaches of all types. Parents are very involved. Like you and I have talked, they all think they're going to get a big scholarship and it's going to pay for college. And I learned this weekend that for girls, maybe that's true. For guys, it's it's not available. Right. So I think the thing I took away is how big the business is, this big business. Somebody's making a lot of money, and it's not the kids playing, and it's not the parents. That's right. <laughs> that is very true. Yeah, I mean, and it's funny because you still play. You're a, an avid fan. I, I think we gave you Tennis Channel for a birthday 
10 years ago, maybe. And I think mom's still cursing at me for doing that. But I mean, you watch a lot of tennis. So even from the fan side, what are some of the things that you've seen change in the professional game of tennis? Well, there was no two-handed backhand except for Pancho Segura, which most of you people listening never heard of. But uh, we all hit a one-handed backhand. Most of us sliced our backhand and topspinned our forehand. There was no big Western grips where people gripping the racket underneath it almost. Uh, The racket head speed today is very important so how fast you can generate that racket head through to hit the ball and through the ball is so important back then it was a very smooth it was no racket head speed at all in fact we were we used the biggest grip and the heaviest racket we could use because that's where you got your power from the heavier racket Mm -hmm. i remember ron holmberg racket was so heavy I couldn't play with it and we were the same age and he wasn't that much bigger than me but he had a big old racket and were people getting injured back then like no, you see now we, I never saw any injuries no none of us ever got hurt what do you attribute that to I mean you're an orthopedic surgeon by training and you know vocation what do you attribute all the the lack of injury when you were playing in the proliferation of injuries now it's a much more aggressive game. I mean, the speed of the players, the strength of the players, the racket head speed is generating tremendous spin. The ball's moving, and you've got to work really hard to win a point. I mean, it's difficult. When I played, when I went to tournaments as a junior, I wasn't that great a player, yet I never had any competition until I hit the semifinals Hmm. of most tournaments. Today, you're lucky if you get past the first round. So these players are having to train hard and be in great shape, and uh, that's where the injuries come from. Look at Rafa. I mean, who, who plays harder and more intently than Rafa? But he's suffered. He's had a lot of injuries. You're seeing younger players getting hurt, but we never saw that. I think it's the intensity of the game. I think it's mental and physical intensity that wasn't there when we played. And in your opinion, is that a good thing for the game? It's a different game. I mean, when I watch tennis you know, and talk to my friends, we, we say that's not the game we played. You go back and watch a Rod Laver, a Rose Wall, the the ground strokes were smooth and easy, and the movement was easy. It just wasn't as vigorous a game. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's gotten to be like basketball back then wasn't as physical as it is today. But uh, I think all the sports have gotten more physical, more and, demands on the body. And, I mean, from a scientific side, you know, there's a lot of research that goes into stroke production, footwork, recovery, all of that. I mean, I, presumably that stuff is going to continue to develop and we're going to get even more precise in, in how we train players and how we teach players to recover. How does somebody that's training at that level keep their body from breaking down? They may be overtrained. I was thinking of McEnroe. McEnroe's uh, was known as somebody who'd never practiced. Right. He just went out and played. He was great. He's a, a rascal, but he was a great tennis player. But he never practiced. And now, before a match, everybody goes out and hits to warm up. You never got. I'd get tired if I went out and <laughs> warmed up. You just showed up and we played? showed up and we played. You know, you had so many minutes to warm up before the match with your opponent, right? And you played, but we never had drills. We never did anything. I think everybody's overtrained. I think they're working too hard at it, but maybe that's what it takes to succeed today. It's a different game. Mm -hmm. It's not the game I played. What about things like, did y'all stretch after you played? We didn't do anything. Yeah. We didn't do anything. Did you worry about what you ate? 
Some of them did, yeah. I didn't. Yeah. I didn't know any better or whether it made a difference anyway. Did you lift weights? No, not back then. I do now a little bit. (laughs) It's so funny to, like, just talk about how much it's changed. And, you know, I mean, this has happened across the board in youth sports. So I didn't play college tennis, but I have two brothers. My one brother did not play. My younger brother walked on at a Division three school. And you, this was, so he's 10 years younger than me, uh, this brother. So do you remember going to watch him play at WashU? I do. And can you talk a little bit about what that was like? Like, you know, what w- what was the energy like? Um, how did he feel about being a walk-on? He loves playing. I think he played number four at Wash U and won the conference at number four his sophomore year. Uh, it was not demanding physically because he was a student. Jeffrey uh, studied hard and did well in school, and I don't think they had to be there so much. It's like listening to the Division Three coach today. I mm-hmm. thought it was very interesting that academics was so important. And tennis was secondary, really. And I think it was like that at Wash U for Jeffrey. Mm -hmm. And he was able to play one year, his sophomore year. He decided to do junior year abroad. His junior year came back and decided he was going to focus on his academics and didn't play any more tennis. And now he's in the tennis to the hilt. He loves it. He's 45 and is on four four point five and five oh teams. He's a captain of one of them. They just won the state championship, getting ready to go to a regional. But he loves it. That's I mean, tennis is his. I I told you a story. I think when he was eighteen, I took him to a Davis Cup tie in Kansas City against Germany. He was still in high school at that point. Right. Yeah. And after the first day we went out to eat and he looks at me and he's at the dinner table, he said, Dad, you know, I could be out there playing. I said, what are you talking about, Jeffrey? He says, well, if you'd have made me play tennis and not made me play soccer and basketball and everything else, made me concentrate on tennis, I might be out there playing. I said, Jeffrey, I didn't make you do anything. I said, you got tired of tennis, you'd go play soccer, you'd get tired of soccer, you'd play basketball. I said, I had nothing to do with that. But I thought that was a funny response from him yeah that was my fault (laughs) (laughs) yeah you can't win it's okay I mean it's the parent dilemma right well as much damned if you do damned if you don't yeah as much as I've been into tennis I think I let each of you guys do what you wanted with tennis sure and you still love it and you're still playing and you had a hiatus where you didn't play at all right my other son, Gary, still plays some tennis, never was competitive, never wanted to be a competitive tennis player, but he's pretty good. Yeah. So the game has become a lifetime sport that's fun. Right. No pressure from anyone but yourself. Right. Which is the way it should be. Yeah. I think. In college, of course, you got, if you're on scholarship, you're going to have the coaches on you to perform. I mean, they're putting up money for you, so they expect you to perform. So Even you if feel you're pressure not on scholarship, though. I mean, the coaches are under pressure to win, right? Right. right. So, I mean, can you do you have memories of your relationship with Emmett Perret while you were in college? Didn't have much. One of my f- fondest memory there was a guy ahead of me who was in the same fraternity, and I was. Dead Ben, I was going to beat him my sophomore year and play ahead of him. And uh, he started moonballing me in the challenge matches. We played challenge matches to see who played what level. And I beat him. And coach comes up to me after because he loved this guy. And he says, Goodman, you sure did a lot of lobbying. I said, look, coach, I didn't start that. I was out there to win, and that's what it took to win. If he was going to lob him, I'm going to lob him back. And I beat him, and I played ahead of him that year. <laughs> so I I like to win. I didn't like to lose. Yeah. And uh, that's the answer to competitive tennis. If you don't 
if if you don't mind losing, you're going to lose a lot. It's almost more important that you don't like to lose than you like to win. Mm-hmm. I think that's the name of tennis. If you don't like to lose, you're going to work really hard to win. Right. But if you don't mind losing, you're going to lose a lot. <laughs> <laughs> so so who was the guy that you beat at Tulane that, that time? I to should, play I'm not going to say his name. <laughs> But but the guy became he's number one in the world right now one or two in the world in the eighty and over. Wow! This guy, after college, he became much better than me, and became nationally ranked at every age level, wow. and still playing, traveling the world, playing yes. tennis in his eighties. Yes, love it. He's a year older than me, so he's eighty two or eighty three. Wow! That's but crazy. I think he's. Either number one or two. I'll tell you another interesting story. Ron Holmberg, who I mentioned earlier, was on the team. So I get a call some years ago that they're doing a memorial for Coach Perret in Atlanta. And could I come? And I couldn't go. But we had a long conversation, and I find out he's this number one ranked 80-year-old's mentor, that this guy calls Holmberg after every match and they talk about it and he helps him. That's hysterical. Isn't that funny? Yeah. Yeah. So they still stay in touch from being college teammates. Right. I love that. I love that. So your relationship with Prey, because you hear now, you know, a lot of guys, even like John Isner, Manny Diaz, still gets to as many of John's matches as he can, wherever John's playing in the world. If Manny can be there, Manny was his coach at University of Georgia. Um, they just have a really tight relationship, you know, and I, I always thought that was so cool. You didn't have that kind of relationship. Did anybody with your coach or did he anybody had, you knew? Coach and Holmberg were at uh, odds with each other most of the time. Okay. Crawford Henry was Crawford Henry. I shouldn't say anything about him. (laughs) But he and Coach didn't get along well either. So Pepe Aguero, the one I mentioned earlier, he and Coach were close. And the guy that I beat my sophomore year out was very close to Perret. But Perret and I went back to high school, though. So he was a a high school mentor and then a college coach. So I don't think, I think it was a different relationship. Did you invite him to your wedding? No. Okay. No. I mean that, you know, to me that like explains pretty well, you know? No, we didn't have a, a social or personal relationship other than the fact that I played and he was the coach. Got it. And I was expected to win and I did the best I could. So, when you got to Shreveport and you said, you know, tennis was became an identity for you here, it's still an identity for you, obviously, because you're still playing. But how has tennis helped you as if you can think back to when you were starting your medical practice? Because you didn't grow up in Shreveport. Shreveport's not a big town. You know, it's very close-knit. People kind of when I was growing up here, at least, everybody knew everybody. Um, So coming from another city, sometimes it's hard to break into a community like that. Did tennis help open the door for you as you were establishing yourself as a doctor? Yeah, no question. Sure. How? How? People knew who I was. And I was very interested in sports. So my, I lived right close to a high school all through my training here in Shreveport. And I decided I wanted to be a sports doctor. I wanted to be on the field for football, maybe at basketball. So I walked over to that school right before I went and practiced, introduced myself to the coach and said, I'd love to be a team doctor. And he says, we already have a team doctor. I said, oh. I said, who is it? And he told me, and he was a general practitioner in Shreveport. He said, I would love to have an orthopedist out there but you'll have to clear it through our doctor. So I called that doctor who was very excited to have somebody out there with him and inviting, and that's how I got started with that. Mm. And 
that gave me a tremendous identity because this team won the state championship my first year in practice. Wow. It was so exciting. I took my afternoon off and went and watched practice. But uh, And no orthopedic surgeons in Shreveport were going to any football games at that time. So by the time that year ended, you know, everybody wanted me. So I had a tremendous increased identity at that time. But that wasn't tennis. This was just sports. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love, I love sports. I love any type of uh, individual performance. I like theater. I like dance. I like everything. So this was just part of my nature. What is it that you love about it? I love seeing people perform. I find it amazing that they can give that in front of all the people or whatever they're doing it in front of. Mm -hmm. I find it just amazing that they can do that. And did you personally get satisfaction from performing in front of other people or did you do it more for yourself? I think it was more for myself, yeah. You didn't care if there were full stands out there watching you cheering Mm -hmm. for you? I didn't care at all, no. I have very few memories of people watching me. I won the state high school tennis championship where everybody played everybody, but I won the whole state championship and Coach Perret came up, I remember, for my semifinal match. And I remember hitting one shot, a backhand down the line, passing the guy I was playing. And I remember Coach Perret it's the only time I ever saw any emotion out of him go, yeah, you know, and I won the match. <laughs> and then my parents came for the final match. Mm-hmm. But I don't have many memories of anything like that. No, it was my game, my, my, my sport, my identity. And I think that's important. So I think today we're, we're taking that away from the kids, I think, by trying too hard to help them. Mm-hmm. We're doing too much, in my opinion. But maybe that's what it takes to get there. You know, you and I were talking about Boletari. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was saying, just think of Agassi and, and all of them back then. They were playing against the best players in the world every day. And you said they don't do that anymore. Now it's all drills and stuff like that. Right. Well, it's changed. Right, right. And it I'm has- not sure it's for the better. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think you can teach somebody how to win. They got to learn how to win. You can teach strategy and probably a coach can decide whether this is somebody you need to go to the net on a lot or you need a drop shot or you need to lob them when they come. They could probably help you like that, but they can't teach you how to win. Winning is inside you. Again, I say, if you don't mind losing, you're going to lose a lot. And that's got to be the most important thing. I don't want to lose. Right. Yeah. All right. So if you could give one message to tennis parents out there that have kids that are have fallen in love with the sport, what would it be? Leave them be. <laughs> let them let them have I'm so surprised. Let them have fun. <laughs> let them enjoy their sport. And if they ask you for something that they really need for their tennis, be supportive. Okay. But let them, let it be theirs. Yeah, let them enjoy it. Did you pay for your own rackets growing up, your own shoes, that stuff? Well, my did parents you, did, yeah. They, they didn't make you work for it? No. Or, no. No, I never learned to string a racket. Never your whole life? Never. Never strung a racket in my life. That's pretty, hmm, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's, um, you know, we youth sports have definitely been taken over by the adults, for sure. I think, I, I don't know if you saw that, even with Jeffrey playing soccer growing up to, you know, how that's changed now that you've got, you've watched your grandchildren play sports. And it's it's all very different from when you were growing up and when I was growing up, y'all weren't involved that I mean you drove me to stuff and you paid for stuff but you weren't hovering when no I enjoyed I enjoyed watching everybody perform whether it be sports or whatever and I think that's the job of the parent is to uh, be supportive in any way they can I think it's important that the sport does not become 
the parents' passion. It's got to be the kids' passion. I mean, I saw all these kids in in Dallas this weekend. I mean, they're they're really good. Right. I mean, these are high school kids. Some of them freshmen, sophomores. I mean, I wouldn't want to get on the court with any of them. Right. They're really good. But only a small percentage of those are going to succeed. I love the Division Three coach who painted a more normal view of what college tennis should be. I want you to come play because you want to play. You love the game. I want you there. Right. And that, I mean, you said to me that sounded more like your experience at Tulane. It It was. was, Yeah. But Um, it's different now, I'm sure. Right. Well, Tulane's Division One, and they're a ranked team and they're competitive. Yeah. And, you know. Um, it, it is a different world. I, I wonder, you know, is the pendulum going to start to swing back the other way or are we going to ever be able to get back to a place where we can hand sports back to our children and take a step back as the adults and maybe as individuals, some will, but as a group, no, it's not going to happen. Too much. You got too much money. You got too much money in the system. And the money is affecting everybody. It's affecting the parents, the coaches, the schools. I mean, it's too much pressure. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So what's next for you tennis-wise? What are you looking forward to this summer? Are you playing? Are you watching? Are you watching on TV? Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> My wife for my 80th birthday, said, you're going to Wimbledon. And Jeffrey, my youngest, is an avid tennis player today. And she says, you need somebody to go to take care of you because you're 80 years old and I, I can't take care of you like that. So she made sure Jeffrey and I went to Wimbledon last year and a fantastic right. experience. We went with Steve Fergal, and you see his name up there, International Tennis Tours, I think. It was an amazing experience. Yeah. And i got we to thank my wife for that because <laughs> I never would have spent the money, you know. Right. It's expensive, but uh, it's worth every penny, yeah. And you got to see Federer play. I You're did. a huge Federer well, fan. Well, we wanted to see Federer on the grass because we were both Jeffrey and I were scared he, wasn't, he was going to quit. Yeah. So we did see Federer on the grass. Yeah, that was part of our thing. Right. And you got a hat. Got a hat? Yeah. What do you call it? Not a bowler. What's it? Fedora. A fedora. Yeah. 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 I got a hat. I got a shirt. Yeah. We had a great time. That was fun. And so this summer, you're not going to be there in person. You'll be watching on TV. I will. Yeah. And Federer's going to be there. Right. Playing again. Yeah. I mean, we all keep thinking he's done, and then he keeps playing. Yeah, I've been to the French Open, the U.S. Open, and Wimbledon. I don't think I'll ever travel to Australia. It's just I don't like the long plane rides, and I think I'm not going to do that. Okay. But I loved the three I've been to. We went to the French for your 75th. Exactly. Yeah, that was pretty fun. That was a great trip. That was really fun. And... I I have to just bring up the Harrisons before we conclude, because I've talked about, well, Pat's, I've interviewed Pat, and I've talked about my relationship with them. Can you talk a little bit about your relationship to the Harrison family in Shreveport? I have a great Harrison story. Okay, tell it. Pat, Ryan was eight years old. He's going to the Orange Bowl. It's going to be on Rubico, I think. And Pat says to me, uh, Carl, can you play with Ryan? Because he doesn't get to play with anybody on the Rubico very much. I said, sure. And Rubico, just for those of you listening, Rubico is the green clay. Right. It's the dirt. So we go out and Ryan beats me. And I go home and I tell my wife, I just got beat by an eight-year-old. She says, sure. (laughs) I said, no, I did. And I told Jeffrey... And Jeffrey said, no way, Dad. So this was on a Saturday. So we're going back out Sunday. And I told Sylvia, I'm going to beat him. So I get out there, and I think, yeah, I win, I win the first set, and it's match point. And I hit an overhead winner. 
for match point. I'm so excited. I hit the net with my racket. I think, yeah. And Ryan looks at it, Dr. Goodman, did you hit that net before the ball bounced twice? I said, I don't know, Ryan. He says, well, you did, and that's my point. <laughs> and and, and Pat, Pat's in the clubhouse or in the pro shop watching, and he comes running out. And I said, Pat, is Ryan right? He said, yeah, he's right. He says, but, but you won. I said, no, if he's right. Well, I didn't win that set. <laughs> he came back and won the set? I think, yeah, he came back and won the set, and I think we quit after that. So I never beat him, really. But that's my Ryan Harrison story. That's awesome. And so you've had a relationship with their family for decades. For sure. Yeah. Well, you were classmates with uh, Pat. Right. Yeah. In yeah. fact, you did me a great uh, service when we went to Wimbledon. We had tickets for a Friday, Saturday, and Monday, because Monday was when the quarters were, and everybody, Jeffrey figured that's the best time to go. But we were going on a Wednesday, and I had a free day Thursday, and you, you told me, you said, why don't you text Pat, see if he can get you in Thursday. That's right. And so I did. And uh, I think you had told him it was my birthday and everything. He was so nice, and he did get us in. So we got an extra day at Wimbledon, just a uh, grounds pass. We didn't have a stadium pass, but it was one of our favorite days. Yeah, yeah. that was fun. So yeah. Pat took care of us. That's Super. good. That's good. It was just wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. Well, good. Anything else you want to talk about before we finish? We're coming to the end of our hour. I can't think of anything else tennis-wise. Yeah, I would like to keep playing. You know, tennis for us, I'll tell you another funny story. Austin and I are playing recently, and this guy walks up as we're changing sides, and he says, you know, I've been watching you guys. Y'all don't move very much. <laughs> I said, yeah, our knees are bad, our back's bad. He says, yeah, but when you get your bracket on the ball, y'all are really good. And he laughed, and he says, yeah, my knees are bad. I know exactly how you feel. Yeah. But I thought that was cute. That was cute. Yeah, y'all are still competitive out there. I've watched you. Right. Yeah. But so. it's fun. It's, you know, it's a sport you can play till the day you die, probably. I don't know how much we'll be moving. Right. But uh, we try. You still love it? I do. I do. I do. That's good. It's a great sport. All right. Well, thanks, Daddy, for doing the podcast. Well, thanks for asking. Yeah, it was that fun. was fun. It yeah. was very fun. And listeners, thank you all for tuning in. And we will catch you next time on Parenting Aces. I'm Lisa Stone, and you've been listening to the Parenting Aces podcast. For tennis parents, by a tennis parent. If you like what you've heard, I hope you'll share the podcast with your tennis community. For all the information you need to navigate the junior and college tennis journey, be sure to check out ParentingAces.com.